0: so much for the opportunity to be here today uh, to deal with an issue that um, is uh, rampant within the culture in which we live. Father, I pray for your grace this morning as I preach. I pray for your grace as we hear. I pray for your grace as we go. And Father, I pray that above all that Christ would be honored through this and that people whose lives have been shattered by sexual sin or even sexual assault and abuse, they might be be healed and put back together, not in this one instance, God, but over the course of their lives, as they're exposed to truth after truth after truth about who you are and who they are in you. So we pray, God, that this time would be fruitful in our lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in Amos chapter 8... Um, we find Amos, uh, we said Amos is a book of judgment, lots of judgment coming down upon God's people as he confronts them over their sin. And in Amos chapter 8, God gives Amos a vision or an image uh, that he puts before his mind. In verses 1 and 2, he says, This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. In other words, I will, I will cease to be patient with them in their sin. I've given them chance after chance after chance after chance after chance to repent and to turn. And now it's time for judgment. This summer fruit represented the fact that this end of an era, right? End of a season was coming in God's dealing with his people. And the reason God's judgment would come upon his people that you see in the book of Amos, we said the very first week that we, what we saw was that the, the, the root of Israel's sin was they had turned away from God and that they had refused to return to him. And that had all kinds of, of, of manifestations in the life of the people of Israel. And the, the, the main thing that, the, that, that kind of runs through the thread of those, and I'll show you a little bit later, is this, is the idea of injustice. This idea of injustice. And we said last week that justice in the prophets is right behavior toward others, horizontally, right behavior toward others, whereby they are able to taste or experience what is good and righteous and pleasant. When the prophets use that word justice, that's what they're talking about. The way that we interact and engage with the others that they're able to taste and or experience what is right, what is good, and what is pleasant in their interactions and in human relationships. And so injustice is the absence of that or the opposite of it. Injustice Is when people in their experiences, what they taste in their interactions with us is evil or unpleasant or unrighteous in their dealings with God's people. And injustice in the prophets is confronted time and time and time and time again. And injustice can be active. It can be it's something that you commit, something that you do to someone else that is evil, that is sinful, but it can also be passive whenever we fail to raise a voice for those who have been victims of injustice, right? You can withhold the good that someone else is due or you can do evil to them. So injustice can be active or it can be passive. And injustice has a variety of faces, And one of the faces of injustice, both in their culture and in ours, is sexual assault, sexual violence, sexual oppression, and sexual abuse. This is a hard thing, right? It's, It's been beating me up over the course of the last week as I've prepared this message. But whenever people oppress the weak and the afflicted, one of the ways that consistently manifests itself is in the sexual realm. And Amos, listen to what he says in Amos chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. He says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drank the wine of those who have been fined. In verse 7, the latter part of that, Amos says, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. The commentators and scholars are divided on how to interpret this particular phrase. And there's two schools of thought. I am going to give them to you and I'm going to tell you where I land, which is going to frame up the rest of this message. The first school of thought is that what was being referred to here is temple prostitution, which was common in the ancient Israelite or ancient Canaanite culture. Uh, they would have temple prostitutes because they believed that they had to perform on earth the acts. They wanted the gods to perform in heaven to then bring fertility to crops and wombs. And so they would, when they went to worship, they would perform sex acts ritually with these temple prostitutes. And there's many scholars who think that's what's going on here, that there's a mixture of temple prostitution into the worship practices of God's people. And that the whole of Israelite men, the reference to father and son is this broad diversity of generations, all men were engaging in practices of prostitution, the same practices practiced by the nations that surrounded them. That's the first school of thought. The second school of thought in the interpretation of this text is this, is that some seed is a reference to a father and son in a household who are both forcing themselves upon a young female household servant who is in a weak and vulnerable position. What we would call in our day sexual assault or sexual abuse. Now let me tell you where I land and why I land there. I think what's going on here in the text is this. It's not, I, don't, I do not believe it's a reference to temple prostitution. I believe it's a reference to the latter of a sexual abuse or sexual assault occurring in a household. Let me tell you why. The word girl as translated in our English translations, it can mean prostitute. And so those who go that direction, they have grammatical, lexical reasons to move down that road. It can mean that, but it can also mean female attendant, like a maid, a domestic servant, a gleaner, like in the book of Ruth, when Ruth goes out to the fields to glean. She's in a very weak and vulnerable position at the whims of the men in the fields in a very male-dominated patriarchal society and their perversions. This word is used both ways in the Old Testament. as prostitutes and female attendants. So that in itself is not decisive. It's not decisive at all. Let me give you a second piece of evidence that makes you, helps you understand why I land where I land. Listen, when you think about the sin that Israel is committing in the book of Amos and God's judgment falling upon them on account of it, What you have over and over and over and over and over again is God confronting his people through his prophet about the ways that they had treated one another, about their injustices amongst the people. Right? In fact, even we said earlier, a couple of weeks ago, that the root of Israel's sin was that they had rebelled against God and had not returned to him. And he had sent this, this judgment and this judgment, all these minor judgments into the nation's life and they had refused over and over again. There's like seven or eight times it says in the book of Amos, yet you did not return to me, yet you did not return to me, yet you did not return to me. That was the root of their sin. And we said the fruit of that was fourfold. It was idolatry, it was injustice, it was hypocrisy, and it was immorality. But the branch upon which all those fruit grew as they had emerged from that root of rebelling against God was the branch of injustice and the abuse of power and position and privilege. You see it. Amos is confronting it time and time and time again. Listen to, the, listen to the four transgressions that he confronts Israel on in Amos chapter 2, where I just read to you from. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head, too, of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. The fourth one, they lay themselves down beside every altar. So there was idol worship going on, but it was on garments taken in pledge that should have been returned after the, the, the promise was fulfilled, but they were not. And they gorged themselves, it says, on the wine of those that they had exercised fines against. So those in power, those in, in positions of privilege, those who were in a very male-dominated society, very patriarchal society, they were abusing those beneath them, trampling the poor, not caring for the needy. They were not returning the, the, the collateral that had been given in pledge whenever the promise was fulfilled. All of these are instances of the abuse of power, the abuse of position, the abuse of privilege. So I do not think the third one in that list is a departure from it, but another expression of it—an expression of abuse of and power and of power and privilege and position as a man and his father are both taking advantage of the same servant in their household who was in a weak and vulnerable position. They were abusing and assaulting her in their home. And listen, church, our culture, our culture mirrors the culture of Amos' day. See, in Amos' day, we said last week that what Amos's the people in Amos' day were, they were trying to shake loose of the moorings of God's word, of of the anchor of God's word. And when a culture does that, what you begin to see emerge is people sinning against each other in very flagrant, egregious, and sick ways. That's what you saw in Amos' day, and that's what you see in our day. In 2006, Tarana Burke founded the Me Too movement to help survivors of sexual violence, particularly those of. Color who came from low wealth communities who felt like they had no voice whenever they were assaulted, abused, molested, or raped to provide them pathways to healing. Now most of us never heard about Me Too until last year whenever that hashtag went viral across social media feeds as woman after woman began to share her story of harassment, of assault, or of abuse at the hands of people who were in positions of power or privilege. Over and over again it emerged into headlines, in fact, Anna Poole Who's a, a, a biblical counselor in a series of blog posts called "Soul Care to the Sexually Violated"? She said this. She said, "In recent months, wave after wave of sex crime reports have crashed national headlines, implicating, but not limited to, the United Nations, the U.S. Congress, Hollywood kingpins, and an Olympic-linked physician." I've seen various reactions to these stories, she says. Horror, terror, disgust, paranoia. Some people are afraid that something like this might happen to their kids. Others change the subject and retreat to less distressing topics. She goes on to say, but sexual abuse is a reality not confined to headlines. How many of you know that? It's not confined to headlines. It doesn't. It's not something that happens out there in the Congo or the Cabal or faraway places, disconnected from our lives. She says, "Sufferers they live and work and worship among us." I dare say that most of us in this room know that sexual abuse, sexual assault, sexual violence is not confined to headlines, and it is not restricted to far. Places because many of us in this room have either experienced it ourselves, we know someone who has been a victim of it, or perhaps we've even known predators and victimizers. As I entered into my freshman year in college, I I met a man who was several years my elder. I met him through the Baptist Collegiate Ministries of McNeese State University, the campus that I started off attending. Uh, college at and we shared the enjoyment of lots of things he'd played baseball growing up I'd play baseball growing up he enjoyed duck hunting I loved to duck hunt he enjoyed fishing I enjoyed fishing he enjoyed concerts and music I enjoyed those things and so we spent lots of time together We fished together, we hunted together, we played ball together, we did even ministry together. He served as a youth worker in his church, which was not my church, and I was serving as a youth intern in my church. So we had shared stories about how we were serving and ministering to students in our particular context, in our particular churches. We traveled together, we encouraged each other. There were many nights that I spent the night with him at his hunting camp because we Hunted, that's one of the reasons that I failed college algebra the very first semester was because I hunted every morning in the fall semester before I went into class. Don't, do learn from my example, but not that way, right? So we spent inordinate amounts of time together. When I got ready to transfer schools and go to Louisiana College, he committed to support me financially for my first two semesters and providing partial scholarship for me. When I got married in 2001, he stood as a groomsman next to me as my wife and I exchanged vows before God and our friends and our family. He was someone that I knew well. We'd encouraged each other, prayed with each other, read scripture together. And then in 2006... I received a phone call from my father late one Wednesday evening after a ministry gathering that I had led. And he said he and my mom had been watching the news and they had just done a story in which this friend had been arrested and indicted on six counts of indecency with a minor. Those charges were eventually... Escalated to sexual battery. Listen, church, I've read the court documents. The state of Louisiana versus, I'm not going to say his name. And I lost my appetite. When his wife at the time leaned into him and said, is this true? His only response was, I can't remember. He's since pled guilty to the charges and is serving a 22-year prison sentence in the state of Louisiana. Several years into that prison sentence, one of his victims, who was in their late teens, by this time, took his own life. So not only did that, was that family ripped apart by his actions, but they were devastated by the shock waves, the tsunami of its after effects. So this topic is not it is not isolated from me. It's not an issue I'm untouched by and, and likely neither are you, in some way, shape or form. In fact, Anna Poole goes on to say, of all crimes, rape is the most globally underreported. Each year brings a national average of almost 322,000 new sex crime cases. But this probably, she says, represents just a sliver, 30% of the actual number. And if you do the math, what that comes out to nationally, annually, is about a million sex crimes cases that take place in our nation. Not even the Bible is insulated from this. Do you know that? In the Old Testament, there are three, at least three stories of sexual violence and sexual assault committed by men against women. So the Bible's not sugar-coated. In Genesis 34, you have the rape of Dinah by Shechem. In, Gen- in, in 2 Samuel 13, you have the rape of Tamar by her half-brother Amnon. In Judges 19, you have the gang rape of a concubine in the streets of an Israelite city. The Bible is not untouched by these things. And unfortunately, many of us are well aware that whether the church is not untouched by this as well. It is not untouched by this. Many churches have been ravaged by this. And I believe in part, in part it could be because pastors and leaders have shied away from that topic, leaning toward less distressing topics in sermons and not meeting it head on. And what happens in situations and environments like that, is that predators feel they have a safe place to prey upon victims, and victims feel as if they have no voice. And listen, I want you to know that the Me Too movement has begun to shed some of that stigma. And and despite the recent comments of our president, duly elected into office, which is a sermon for another day, I believe that's a good thing. That more and more people are able to come forward and speak about the things that have been done to them. The sinful, egregious, flagrant acts of violence and betrayal of trust. So what are we talking about this morning? What is sexual abuse? What is sexual assault? Justin and Lindsay Holcomb define it this way. They say, sexual assault or abuse is any type of sexual behavior or contact where consent is not freely given or obtained and is accomplished through force, intimidation, violence, coercion, manipulation, threat, deception, or abuse of authority. David Pallison, who's a counselor, says sexual assault or abuse is an invasive or invasive event of traumatic evil. Sexual assault is a crime of power, domination, and control that uses sex. Anna Poole goes on to say in that same series of posts of soul care for the sexually violated, sexual violence is not about sex. It's about power. Rape is a criminal invasion of the body, a power play meant to dominate and degrade. It is intimately damaging and holistically disruptive. Rape raids and robs you, leaving a riptide of traumatic aftermath. And I want you to know the Bible uses the same kind of language when it speaks of these instances. In Genesis chapter 34, in verse 1, we read, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. She's just going out for a walk to visit with the ladies. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, one with position and privilege and power, When he saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. That word seize literally means take for myself and take by force. In other words, this is what I want and I will use my strength and my power and my privilege and my position to get it, even if I have to take it by force. It was a a time in Israel and even a time in America where men are accustomed to getting what they want and when they don't get what they want, they take what they want. That is sexual assault. That is sexual abuse. That is illegal and that is sinful. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, we read about the rape of Tamar by her half-brother Amnon. Amnon wanted to be with her, but she was a virgin. Her virginity was being protected. I wish I had time just to just walk through that whole text. By her father David and by her older brother Absalom. Amnon was her half-brother. And he conspires with his cousin to create a scheme to pretend that he was sick and call for his sister to prepare a meal for him. And when that meal would be served to him in his chambers, because he wouldn't leave his chambers because he was sick, he would then seize her and be with her. Listen to what the text says, literally, word for word, in Second Samuel 11, verse 11. But when she brought them the meal that she had prepared near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother. Right? She's a beast, right? In a good way. Right? She gives defense and fights back. No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Verse 14, but he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. He took hold of her literally means this in the Hebrew, that he used his exercise, his physical strength and power over her. And I don't even have to tell you what he being stronger than her means. In the days before the CrossFit, okay? Listen, there are some women who could whoop up on some men these days. But in those days before, that particular brand of exercise. Most men were stronger and he used his strength to take what he wanted and he violated his sister. In Judges 19, we could go on and on and see, we, we could talk about Judges 19 as well and see how there was force gang, as, as a concubine was gang raped in the streets of an Israelite city. See, sexual abuse is any time, sexual assault is any time, any sexual behavior where contact where consent is not freely given or obtained through force, intimidation, violence, coercion, manipulation, threat, deception, or abuse of authority. And listen, church, it is broader than rape. It is broader than rape. And listen, this is why why I gave you fair warning about the kids being here. But listen, I'm going to tell you what it involves. It involves forced masturbation. Anytime somebody tries to touch the genitals of another person or child in particular or asks them to touch theirs, that is sexual assault, sexual abuse. It's forced oral sex, forced penetration. It involves molestation. When someone coerces a child, younger than them, who does not understand what's going on into a sexual encounter. That is sexual assault, that is sexual abuse. It also involves compliance out of fear. There's a difference between consent and compliance. Compliance out of fear for bodily injury or harm is not consent. That is sexual assault. Drugging someone and taking advantage of them is sexual assault, it is sexual abuse. Manipulating someone who is of their own accord intoxicated and taking advantage of the situation. Like you didn't get them drunk, you didn't get them high, but they got themselves that way. That is sexual assault by you taking advantage of them in a weakened condition. Also, gr- the grooming process, listen, by which abusers prepare their victims for violation is abuse, it is sinful. That's a damaging act. I wish the story I told you earlier was the only predator I'd known. In college, I I, I went to college with another gentleman who was several years younger than I am, who is now serving a 10-year prison sentence in the state of Louisiana for coercing a 13-year-old child into a sexual relationship with him while he served as a youth pastor of a local church. He began to undermine her trust in her family. Make her dependent upon him and his counsel and his, but like. Don't listen to your family; they don't know what they're talking about. I'm the only one who understands you. I'm the only one who's in your corner. He gave her an affectionate nickname, and then he had M and M's created with the picture of that nickname of that, of that particular item that he'd given her the nickname with, and lured her into this relationship. It was a grooming process that prepared her for the encounter with him. And it was multiple encounters with him over the course of a three-year span. That grooming process is sinful and abusive. So this is what we're talking about when we talk about sexual abuse or about sexual assault. It's not just a creeper in an alley who happens to mug you and pull you aside into an abandoned building. In fact, most frequently sexual abuse and sexual assault occurs with someone that you know and trust. And so what do we do about this? What do we do with this? Listen, in the time that we have left, I want to talk to five segments of our church. Five segments. The first one, parents. Parents, if you are the parent of a child in this church, in this community, in this culture, Prepare your kids to recognize predators. Prepare your kids to recognize them. Have an age-appropriate conversations with your kids about these issues, right? A two-year-old cannot comprehend this. I get it. But a five-year-old can begin to comprehend that these are parts of my body that nobody else touches other than me. And listen, let me encourage you to use precise language when you speak to your kids about the parts of their body. They don't have TTs and wee-wees, okay? They have a penis and a vagina. They need to know what those body parts are called and they need to know how to articulate that. So that if, God forbid, you find yourself in a detective office one day, there is no confusion. No confusion. About who touched what or where. They know what their body parts are called. You use precise language. You have ongoing conversations with them about this at age appropriate distinctions. Anytime they leave for a trip, an overnight trip, whether it be to go to camp or whether it be to stay the night at a friend's house, those of you who allow sleepovers, that you're having conversations before they leave and when they get back and saying, no one's allowed to touch you there other than yourself remember? Yes, I remember. When they get back, did anybody touch you in places they should not touch you or ask you to touch them in places you should not touch them? You're having this conversation consistently with your kids. Caleb went on his first sleepover at a friend's house with a family that we knew and trusted on Friday night and Saturday evening as we took a walk in this neighborhood just behind us in our neighborhood. On the way home, I asked, did anybody touch you in a place they shouldn't have touched you or did they ask you to touch them in a place that you shouldn't have touched them you gotta have dialogue with your kids about this because if the first time that you speak to them about it is when something erupts or arises they're gonna feel like they're in trouble that they have done something wrong and that they're being punished You need to let them know that it is okay and appropriate and right for them to tell you when something is awry, when something is amiss, when something is wrong, when something has been done to them or they've been asked to do something that is inappropriate. You need to have that conversation with them. And listen, I want you to know as a church, we take this seriously. We're aiming to guard the safety of our children. It's one of the reasons when on our website, it indicates that if you want to serve in our kids' ministry, you have to go through a criminal background check. Because we're looking for red flags. And we're in the process of having conversations even about are there greater measures that we could take to protect the safety of our kids. But parents, you've got to take a leading role in the lives of your kids by having age-appropriate conversations with them about these matters. Second segment of our church I want to talk to is this, is those of you who may be addicts, several years ago there was an organization founded called Fight the New Drug, which is an organization that is combating the damaging effects of pornography in our culture, Fight the New Drug has a website I encourage you to take a look at it, there's great resources, great resources there, Pornography is a drug and it stimulates similar brain centers as narcotics do. And it's just as addictive as narcotics are. And those of you who have wrestled with that addiction or those of you who dismiss that as, as just, just boys will be boys. I want you to know that it is more than that. It has damaging consequences. There's a tidal wave of effects in the lives of people. It has, in, fact, in fact, research has shown there is a link between violent sexual behavior, sexual assaults, sexual abuse, and the viewing and addiction to pornography. There is a link between those two things. It is not benign. It is cancerous. It is cancerous. Consider on on, on Fight the New Drug's website, they have a piece of evidence after evidence after evidence to support this conclusion. Listen to some of these statistics. The FBI's own statistics show that pornography is found at 80% of the scenes of violent sex crimes or in the homes of perpetrators. 80%. You can't tell me that viewing pornography does not shape the way that people think about sexuality and other people's bodies and their access to it. In addition, the Michigan State Police Department found that pornography is used or imitated in 41% of the sex crimes they have investigated. The University of New Hampshire did a study that showed that the states with the highest readership of pornographic sites and magazines have the highest rape rates. one, One physician, Dr. Victor Klein, did research that showed how consumers who became addicted to pornographic materials begin to want more explicit or extreme material and end up desiring to act out what they've seen on the screen. In addition, two other physicians noted in their research-based book, Pornography and Sexual Aggression, that certain aggressive forms of pornography can affect aggressive attitudes toward women and can desensitize an individual's perception of rape. So they don't even see sexual assault the same way anymore. They don't even see rape in the same classification or category any longer. These attitudes, they go on to say, and perceptions are furthermore directly related to actual aggressive behavior against women. In addition, they found adult porn was connected with each of the 1,400 child sex molestation cases in one Kentucky town. And child porn was connected with the majority of them. We could go on. I share more and more statistics, evidence-based research that gives a connection between addiction and use of pornography and the trail that it leads people down. Some Some people in our culture say that it is benign. They say it's just harmless. It's just entertainment. I would never go down that path. Let me tell you what you will never do. You will never know what path you will walk down after five years, ten years, fifteen years of those images and those habits shaping your heart and shaping your mind. You don't know what you will be capable of five years from now if that continues to shape and influence how you view sexuality. You don't know. Listen, I wish I had time to read Leviticus 18 to you. All the laws that God gives. Don't have sex with your your stepmom. Don't have sex with your dad's wife. Don't have sex with your wife's dad. Don't have sex with your grandson. Don't have sex with your nephew. Don't have sex. Why does God have to give us all that? Because He knows how wicked our hearts are when they're shaped by influences outside of His Word. He knows the wickedness which we're capable of. And you don't know what you're capable of five years from now, seven years from now, ten years from now, two months from now. The third segment I want to talk to is victimizers. If you have operated as a predator, with all the truth and grace I can muster, as one who stands under the authority of God's Word, I command you to repent. To turn. And what that repentance looks like needs to be meted out and weighed out through counsel with an elder, with a counselor. that we might walk alongside of you in that repentance. You might bear fruit with it. And it would not be a privatized thing in your heart before God, but it would be a thing that you come forward with and allow people to counsel you and shepherd you toward what that repentance actually should look like in your life. The fourth segment I want to talk to are those of you who know people who have been victimized. Those of you who know people who have been assaulted. Those of you who know people who have been abused. That your call, my call in their life is to be an advocate for them. You know what an advocate is? It's a representative. Someone who speaks for those who have no voice. Someone who walks alongside of them in the midst of their need. To advocate for them. Some of you are terrified to be an advocate in the life of somebody who's been through such a traumatic experience. And part of the reason is because you have no idea what to say. And listen, I want you to know, it's okay to say, I don't know what to say. But I am so sorry. Sorry that you were sinned against in this way. I am so sorry that you were violated. I am so sorry that you were abused. I am so sorry that you were assaulted. And that your presence with them, as you walk alongside them, reminds them that they are not alone. Even if you don't have the right words to say to them, Your presence alone assures them that they are not alone in in, in this battle that they're fighting back toward health and wholeness. That God is with them and that you are with them and both of those are vitally important. And that you engage them with patience and with compassion. Listen, the very first time that you sit down with somebody who perhaps has been through this kind of traumatic experience you are not going to have magic words that are going to set everything right for them. It doesn't happen that way. Those of us in this room, many of us have had this experience where we've had to have exposure to the same truth over and over and over and over, before it finally began to set roots in our hearts and begin to grow and blossom and flourish. Before we finally it clicked. right? We heard that same sermon 17 times before all of a sudden it shook down into our hearts. We read that same text time and time again before it finally seeped into our souls. And listen, those who have experienced the trauma of sexual assault or sexual abuse, they are no different than that. You're not going to have magic words that can set everything right, but over the course of time, as they continue to be exposed to truth by your compassion and your grace and your patience, they begin to take small, slow steps just like the rest of us, and listen. One of the things you need to recognize is, if you're working with somebody who's like that, is this: is that there are some wounds. There are some wounds that only the resurrection and new creation can heal. In their fullness. But don't let that shy keep you from, from leaning in or sh- keep, make you shy away from being an advocate and walking alongside of them doing courage. Finally, to those who are victims, I'm not naive enough to think, in fact I know there have been men and women who have been members of this congregation who have experienced this kind of trauma in their lives. I'm not naive enough to think that there may be some in this room this morning who have never shared that with anyone. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Turn to Jesus as your advocate. Turn to Jesus as your advocate. If you've been sexually abused, one of the first things I want you to know is that it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And listen, I don't even, I don't, I don't care if it was a season in your life in which modest was not the hottest for you and you were scantily dressed. Listen, the lesson to someone who's been abused or raped is not Modesty. That is not the lesson. It's not. Because if that's the first place that we go, or even the second place we go, or the third place we go, here's what happens. They begin to internalize that belief that they were culpable for the sick thoughts in the minds of a predator who preyed upon them because of the way that they were dressed. It's not your fault. If you could not fight back because you weren't strong enough, to do even verbal judo like Tamar does in 2 Samuel 13, it is still not your fault. And I want you to know that even if no one else knows this morning, God knows. And He is your advocate. That He is interceding for you. That you, the book of Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest who has ascended into the heavens, who lives to make intercession for us. Before the throne of God. And his name is Jesus Christ. You have an advocate. Even if no one else knows. Even if you've been silent about it all of your life. Even if no one else believes you. No one else will listen. No one else will sympathize. No one else will move towards you in empathy. You still have an advocate. And I want you to know that. Because it makes all the difference in the world. And I know, I know I've been good these last several weeks about landing at 40 minutes, and that's where we're at right now, but I got four things. I'm gonna do them quick. I wanna tell you the difference having this advocate makes for you if you've been a victim. First of all, having Jesus as your advocate gives you a new identity. See, ma- many who have been abused or assaulted, they look in the mirror and what they see as they see someone who is defiled, they see someone who is dirty, they see someone who is disgusting because they have internalized and identified themselves with the act that was committed against them. They see that as core and central to their identity. They, they have a hard time distinguishing between something that, a, a defiling and disgusting and dirty act being committed to them and them being vile and dirty and disgusting and, and, and defiled in and of themselves, in their identity. But listen, I want you to know that in the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you have Jesus as your advocate, it gives you a new identity. And it's no longer, listen, it's no longer what was done to you that defines you. It's no longer even what you did as a result of what was done to you because there is so much trauma in the life of someone who's been assaulted and abused and things that they do going forward, even sinful things that they do going forward that emerge out of the trauma and pain of their abuse and their assault. So it's no longer what was done to you that defines you. It's no longer even what you did as a response to what was done to you that defines you. But it's now what was done for you that defines you. What was for you? As the very Son of God, co-equal with the Father, is clothed in flesh, and He comes as an incarnate, as among us, who would walk and talk and speak with all grace and truth, as one who would live a sinless life and die a sinner's death on the cross and as He would hang there bearing the weight of our sin, not only the sins that you have committed, but the sins that have been committed against you. Bearing the weight, bearing the condemnation. And as His body is crushed at the cross and laid in the tomb, and three days later He... Rises from the grave and ascends to heaven to live forever as your advocate before the Father. He gives you a new identity, not as one who is dirty, but cleansed. Not as one who is defiled, but as whole. He gives you a new identity as a beloved child in Christ, as righteous and justified. If you are in Him, you are His beloved son and daughter. Not somebody being worthy of cast off. Not only does it give you a new identity, but second, it frees you from your shame. Did you notice when I read that text earlier, when Tamar responds to her brother in, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, she says, where would I take my shame? See, victims of sexual assault and abuse oftentimes are covered in shame. And Tamar doesn't know where she could take it. I want to tell you this one is a place that you can take it. It's to the cross. In the book of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, Verse 2, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus despised all the shame. His crucif- passion and crucifixion was a shame-filled event in which He was beaten and stripped and hung like a common criminal before all of the city to see. And He Entered our experience of shame. All the shame that we would experience. He entered into that experience with us. So that he might free us from it. And if you're carrying around shame with you this morning. I want you to know that you can bring it to his feet. You can bring it to the cross. And you can find him lifting it off of you. Third. The gospel makes room for righteous anger and uproots sinful anger. It is a natural, normal response to be angry when injustice has been committed against you or someone you love. In fact, Paul will quote Psalm 4.4 in Ephesians 4.26 when he says, Be angry and do not sin. There are some things that it is right to be angry about. David Paulson, the counselor, once again says, anger can be utterly right, good, appropriate, and beautiful. It's the only fair response to something evil and a loving response on behalf of evil's victims. To be angry, but not sinfully angry, and lash out and act out in vengeance. Romans 12 admonishes us not to take revenge or vengeance into our own hands, but leave space, leave room for the wrath of God because He's much better at avenging evil than you are or than I am. But listen, let me be clear. Seeking justice for a wrong that has been committed is not the same thing as seeking vengeance. It's not the same thing. Wanting... Desiring that that justice be meted out in accordance with the standard of the laws of our nation on account of an injustice that's been committed is not the same thing as desiring personally, bodily harm to that person and seeking to avenge that wrong. See, the Gospel, having Jesus as your advocate makes room for righteous anger, but it also uproots sinful anger. Finally, the Gospel gives... Hope, having Jesus as your advocate, turns despair into confidence in God's promises. See in First Peter chapter one, Peter admonishes us as we seek to live holy lives here in this world to set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First Peter one thirteen. In other words, what Peter says is this: He says, "If you want to know how to live in the present, you got to look to the future." And those of you who have maybe been victimized by an abuser or someone who has assaulted you, I want you to know that one, I am deeply sorry that you were sinned against in that way. And there may not be full healing until resurrection and new creation, but I want you to know you can experience it in part by looking towards that hope. To know that one day every right will be made, every wrong will be made right, every injustice will be avenged. Everything, every evil that has been committed will ultimately come to an account. And as you look forward with that hope of knowing that one day this wound this, 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 this wound that has, has been, a, perhaps for some of us, been a gaping hole in our hearts for so long will be stitched up and healed without any scar. See that having Christ as your advocate gives you that hope. You get a new identity. It allows you room for righteous anger. Takes away your shame and it gives you hope for a glorious future. I know I'm over and I'm done, but listen if you're here this morning and this has surfaced, surfaced in your heart sensitivities, pain, heartache. Traumatic memories. I would love to pray with you. I would love to pray with you. In a moment, Brian and Angela are going to come. We're going to sing. We're going to sing our hearts out about this one. Whoever lives and pleads for us in the heavens, Jesus Christ, our advocate. But as we sing, if you need to talk, if you need to pray, if you need counsel. I would love to pray with you, pray for you. And begin to lean into that. Even if it's something that has been under the shroud of secrecy in your life for many years. I'll be in the back of the room and then when we're done I'll be at room five on your way out. I would love to connect with you. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning we're grateful for your goodness that Your grace is able to heal our wounds, that the kindness that You exhibited towards us in Christ is able to set right all the cruelty that we've experienced in this life. And for those who have experienced the evil acts of men and women whose hearts were bent toward abuse, and toward violence and toward coercion and toward manipulation may you set their feet on a pathway of healing as they turn to Christ as their advocate as they find other human advocates here within your church the Redeemer would be a safe place for them God, I pray that if there are victimizers under the sound of my voice this morning, God, that you might bring them to repentance. And that they might even know through their repentance and faith in Christ the forgiveness and cleansing and healing, even though there might be consequences for their sin. I pray you give us wisdom as parents to navigate these discussions with our children in appropriate ways. And as friends, may we lean into and not away from those who have been wounded, for those struggling with addiction, that is shaping the way they see sexuality and violence and people of the opposite sex. God, may you break them free now. Give them grace to repent now. Today. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, but today. because they don't know who they will be in five months or five years if they continue in it. As we sing this morning, may you help us to rejoice in Christ who finished His work at the cross and now is seated at the right hand of of the throne upon which you are, Father. As our advocate, we pray in Jesus' name.